This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. ER Vet is brought to you by Heroes for Healthy Pets. We're passionate about your pet's health. to ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Justine Lee, and I'm an emergency critical care veterinary specialist and toxicologist. Thanks for joining us today. Today, we have the guest, Dr. Garrett Pachtinger, who's a fellow emergency critical care and veterinary specialist and a criticalist at the Veterinary Specialty and Emergency Center in Pennsylvania. And we're going to be talking about canine hepatitis. We'll be right back after these messages. to thank our sponsor for today's episode, Pretty Litter. A bag of Pretty Litter weighs four pounds, and it's really lightweight. Most litter weighs between 20 to 40 pounds. It's also long-lasting. One bag of Pretty Litter lasts an entire month for one cat. It's also got built-in health monitoring. It keeps tabs on your cat's health by changing color if it detects potential health issues. For example, Pretty Litter may turn green or blue if it notices a high urinary pH, which can lead to bladder crystals and stone formation. If Pretty Litter turns purple or red, it may indicate that there's blood in there. And this can oftentimes be a sign of bladder stones, crystals, bladder inflammation, or even a urinary tract infection. If you notice an unusual color, when in doubt, Consult with your veterinarian to find out what's going on. We'll want to get a sterile urine sample, but it could be a helpful indicator by keeping tab on your cat's health. Pretty Litter also has microcrystals that absorb the urine and odor, so it's got amazing odor control. Also, it's easy maintenance. All you have to do is scoop the poop. No more clumping. Pretty Litter is delivered straight to your door every month with free shipping, so it's hassle-free and convenient. Go to prettylittercats.com slash ervet and use the promo code ERVET for 20% off your first subscription order. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. ER vet on Pet Life Radio. Super excited to have Dr. Garrett Pachtinger, who's a fellow diplomat of the American College of Veterinary Emergency Critical Care. What does that mean? That means he's a board certified emergency critical care veterinary specialist. Dr. Pachtinger, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So today I wanted to talk about hepatitis. I oftentimes will see dogs, either old dogs or young puppies that come into the emergency clinic or the specialty hospital and they're jaundiced. And I was wondering if you could talk to me about why dogs get jaundiced, what the workup is, and what are some of the causes of hepatitis? Most importantly, is it contagious to a human? Great questions. And the first thing I'm going to say is that for those not familiar with the word hepatitis, the initial part of the word, the HEPA part, is referring to the liver. And the itis, if you think about anything like pancreatitis or hepatitis or a cystitis, that itis at the end usually means some type of infection, inflammation, or disease of that organ. And so when we're talking about hepatitis today, we're essentially talking about disease or illness of the liver 
or the associated structures right around the liver. And so that's what we're going to essentially focus on today. Now, we have many words for that yellowing color of the skin, the eyes, the mouth. Jaundice is one of them. Icterus is another. And when I think of a patient that has icteric jaundice, yellow gums, yellow eyes, the sclera, the whites of their eyes are yellow, I typically try to decide if they're going to be put in one of three different categories. The first category is prehepatic. And remember, the HEPA part of that word is the liver. So prehepatic means disease before you get to the liver itself. For example, you can have a patient that has an immune system problem where they're destroying their own red blood cells. It's called immune-mediated anemia. For some reason, the body decided it wants to destroy its own red blood cells. It recognizes them as foreign. Inside of those red blood cells is the bilirubin agent. And so if those red blood cells are destroyed in your bloodstream and that bilirubin leaks out, you can have a discoloration, that icterus jaundice yellow color, because that bilirubin has leaked out. So it's not technically a liver problem or something after the liver. It's before the liver. It's called prehepatic. The second category is hepatic disease itself. So disease of the liver. And we'll go into some more specific diseases of the liver. But if you have disease of the liver itself and it can't break down and metabolize that bilirubin, you're going to end up having an abundance of it left in the body and hence that yellow icteric jaundice color. And then finally, you have what's called post-hepatic. So it means disease after the liver itself. And typically, when I think of disease after the liver, I think of the gallbladder because the gallbladder is a great area of storage. So if you have a gallbladder blockage, if you have a gallbladder infection or other gallbladder associated disease after the red blood cells and then after the liver, that would be called post-hepatic icterus or disease. And so that is how I break down the level of icterus. Is it something that we think is coming before the liver? disease of the liver itself, or disease after the liver, gallbladder. And there are cases where it's not clean, simple, and easy to differentiate between the three. For example, you can have disease of the liver and gallbladder at the same time. But in general, that's how veterinarians like to break down the yellow color into categories. Is it something before the liver, the liver itself, or after the liver? So how do we work it up and what tests do I need to have done at my vet or at the specialty clinic? Of course. So if I have a patient that comes in and they have yellow discoloration to their eyes or to their mouth, their gums, for example, the first thing that I typically do is, aside from my general physical examination, is I'll run blood work on that patient. Although we should say the general physical examination can be very, very important in helping to decide what tests are important. Do they have belly pain? Do they have fluid in their belly cavity that shouldn't be there? Is there any other disease that we pick up on our examination that would change our treatment plan? So an exam really can't be overestimated, the importance of that. But then we go to our blood work. And why do we do general blood work? I tell my families that general blood work may or may not tell me exactly the problem that we're seeing. But blood work is a very cost-effective 
good global patient assessment. I don't know a single test out there that is more cost effective or gives me a better general overall representation of the patient as compared to blood work. When I think of a blood work, I will typically run what's called a complete blood count and a serum biochemistry profile. A complete blood count is a test that looks at your cell counts. So it's going to give me a good representation of my red blood cells, my white blood cells, and my platelets. The serum biochemistry profile typically gives us a great representation of organ values, such as the kidneys, or as we're discussing here, the liver values, my bilirubin level, my electrolytes, my blood sugar, and my protein levels. And we as veterinarians will look at that as a global understanding. Are there values that are normal? Are there values that are abnormal? And then we compare and contrast the values to decide what is our level of suspicion of disease? Do we think that other tests are needed and or how do we start treating that patient? So that's how I would start a really good history examination as well as blood work to check the patient's cell counts, organ values, protein levels, electrolytes, and blood sugar. Now, I oftentimes will also do an abdominal ultrasound. Can you explain what that is and does it hurt my dog or my cat while my pet's getting an ultrasound? That's a great question. And I don't know if 10 or 15 years ago we would have that same question because over the last 10 to 15 years, ultrasound has become more cost effective and more available. And many veterinarians, even general practitioners, now have ultrasound in their practice. And how I describe it to owners is I tell them it's like having a pregnant woman having a sonogram of the baby. It really doesn't hurt at all. Most of our patients are a little furrier than people, and so we often need to maybe shave a little area just so we have good contact of the ultrasound probe, which is what gets pressed against the patient. But otherwise, aside from shaving a little bit of fur, it doesn't hurt at all. And the nice thing about ultrasound is you don't have to take them to another room like you would x-rays. They can stand, they can sit, they can lie down. But it's a great way to look at the patient, have them be comfortable. And essentially what it's doing, it's using ultrasound waves to look at the organs, to look at all of the different parts of the belly cavity without hurting the patient at all. So really, it's the best way and again, a very cost-effective way that we can get a look on the inside without actually having to be in the inside. I think one important thing that pet owners need to know is oftentimes when I'm about to have our board-certified radiologist do an ultrasound on the liver, I will often talk to owners about doing an aspirate versus a biopsy. Now, one of the reasons why this is important to know is because this actually gives us a little bit more information, which is really, really helpful if your dog is jaundiced. So what's the difference? An aspirate is typically when we stick a vaccine-sized needle, so a very small gauge needle, about a 22-gauge needle, and we actually go through the skin and pull a few cells out of the liver. This typically does not require sedation. And if it does require sedation, it's usually just a little bit of a drug that is just going to take the edge off. It doesn't make your pet completely sleepy. This is different than a biopsy. A biopsy is when we have to briefly anesthetize your patient completely. And when we do that, we're actually getting a piece of tissue. And this is important to realize because 
there's more potential rare side effects that can happen. So what are some of the side effects I do warn the owners about when we're doing an aspirate versus a biopsy? Well, if your dog or your cat is about to get an aspirate, again, we're gonna stick that small vaccine sized needle into that liver or whatever the organ is that's abnormal, and we're gonna pull a few cells out. So the biggest side effects are once in a while, they can bleed a little bit from that needle going in. Sometimes they can actually get a sample where it comes back just as blood instead of the actual diagnosis. And the third thing I warn people is sometimes cancer may be a couple of millimeters over and we aspirated a few millimeters to the other side. So it doesn't always give us the answer, but the majority of the time the aspirate is really helpful. And I'll be honest in saying that I usually start with an aspirate because it's pretty safe and it gives us an answer and it rarely has complications. If I get the aspirate results back a few days later and it comes back non-diagnostic, that's usually when I'll educate owners and say, you know what? We actually need to briefly anesthetize your dog or your cat and get a bigger piece of tissue. And again, that's when we'll use a biopsy gun. And so really important that your veterinarian be aware of this and you talk to your vet about this. When in doubt, I always like to have this done at a specialty clinic or potentially by a board certified radiologist. Before we continue with this week's topic, I wanted to talk about my own dog, Milo, who's gonna turn six in just a few weeks. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I always make sure to celebrate my dog's birthday because they're only here with us for a short period of time. So I love posting my pet photos on Instagram. So I always wanna make sure that I have Instagram worthy photos. And the best way of doing that is if you're celebrating a special day for your four-legged friend is to make sure that you're accessorizing your pet parties. One of my favorite ways of doing it is by using pet party products at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. If you're having an upcoming birthday party or adoption day celebration for your dog, you might want to have a fun excuse to be able to decorate them with party hats, bow ties, and tutus. What I love about this kit is it includes photo props such as funny glasses, hats, and it even has party supplies and decorations such as table covers, party banners, cake decorations, cups, bags, and even treat bowls. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy pet photos is available on two different colorful themes, Fireman and Tropical. Go to mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife to check out some great pet party products. Let's take a short break and we'll continue with this really important topic, hepatitis, right after these messages from our sponsors. It's not just a sneeze. It could be the pathway to disease. Your dog is at risk for contracting dog flu. That's why it's important to vaccinate your dog for dog flu. Get your dog vaccinated today. Visit dogflu.com for more information. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs> ER Vet on Pet Life Radio. Today, I'm joined with Dr. Garrett Pachtinger, a fellow emergency critical care veterinary specialist. And we're talking about the important diagnosis of hepatitis. Now, don't worry, this typically does not spread to humans. It's totally different than humans, but it is important because we can see dogs and cats that end up getting hepatitis. Now, 
Dr. Pachtinger, we already talked about what some of the big categories are of liver disease. We talked about how to work it up, including blood work and ultrasound. What are the big causes of hepatitis or increases in liver enzymes or jaundice that you see in the emergency clinic or at the ER vet? Great question. And I think that it really will depend on going back, for example, to the blood work and ultrasound that we did. Those two tests give us a great representation of what's going on on the inside, what's going on with the liver, with the gallbladder, and all the associated organs. Now, there are some very rare diseases that can cause some mild elevations in our liver values. For example, a low thyroid level, hypothyroidism, can cause very mild increases in some of our liver values. But if I have a patient that truly is sick, they are icteric jaundice, that yellow color. They have markedly elevated liver values and bilirubin values. What are some general categories that I think of from a disease standpoint that can do that? The first is gastrointestinal disease. Because if you think about it, the liver is surrounded by the stomach, the intestines, the pancreas. If you have infection or inflammation of those organs, for example, if you have bad inflammation of your pancreas, which sits right near your liver, you can have that inflammation spread across and affect the liver as well. So severe inflammatory bowel disease, inflammation of the pancreas called pancreatitis, severe inflammation of the stomach and the intestines, a gastritis or a gastroenteritis, that can cause secondary inflammation of the liver and we can start seeing not only liver values go up, but also your bilirubin level go up as well. We can also see conditions of, of course, the liver and gallbladder system as well, our hepatobiliary system. So for example, if you have tumors of the liver or the gallbladder, if you have infection of the liver or the gallbladder, or if you have disease of the gallbladder itself, what's called a mucosal. A gallbladder mucosal is typically when you have inspissated debris, infection, cells that block where the gallbladder allows bilirubin and bile to go out. If your gallbladder gets blocked, that can result in elevation of your liver values and your bilirubin system, and you have a resulting yellow icteric jaundice color. The other thing that I would comment on of the liver and gallbladder, but more specifically the liver, is what's called a vascular anomaly. In plain English, that means there's an abnormal blood vessel that could bypass or change the way the liver processes blood. And one specific condition we see that is what's called a portosystemic shunt. And a portosystemic shunt is a big fancy medical term for, again, an abnormal blood vessel that bypasses the liver. And so instead of the liver getting the blood that has been used to decontaminate, this blood vessel goes all the way around the liver into another big vessel and the liver can't detoxify the blood. And the way I describe that to owners is that the liver itself is kind of like a kitchen sink sponge. It's not really a hollow organ. So if you were to put your kitchen sink sponge underneath the faucet and start out your faucet at a low level, the sponge would soak up all of that water. For example, the liver would soak up all of that blood and detoxify it. But at some point, when that sponge becomes saturated, the water is just going to pour out all over it. It's not going to absorb it anymore. There's a lot of resistance. And so if, if we think about that abnormal bypass, that abnormal shunt vessel, if you were driving down the highway, another analogy, and you were saying to yourself, oh my God, 
95 has so much traffic. Do I want to sit in this traffic? No, I'll take this little tiny road that's going to be a shortcut for me and go all the way around the traffic. What would you prefer to do? Of course, you're going to take that side road and not sit in traffic because the liver, the traffic, I-95, is backed up. And so that's why we see shunt dogs get sick is because all of that toxin in the bloodstream, the bilirubin and all of those toxic chemicals never go through the liver. And so a portosystemic shunt is another cause for disease itself. So we have vascular anomalies, we have tumors, we have infection or inflammation of the gallbladder and the liver itself. So those are some big categories of disease that we see in the liver and the gallbladder. So those are the ways that we're going to work it up with a combination of blood work and imaging studies, whether it's x-rays or more helpfully ultrasound, will hopefully get to the bottom of what organ is affected. And as Justine was talking about, if the liver is affected, potentially get an aspirate or a biopsy to get more specific information. Great points. And thank you so much for that helpful explanation. I think some important other rule outs that we want to make sure is that it's nothing infectious. So again, you talked about gallbladder problems and don't worry, dogs can live without their gallbladder just like humans can. But there are a couple of infectious diseases that we worry about. One of them that I see a lot in the Minnesota area is something called canine leptospirosis. And this is a bacteria-like organism that's actually shed when wildlife urinate. So rats, mice, raccoons, you know, even cattle, pigs, dogs can carry this. So if your dog likes to swim or if he drinks out of swampy water or you have a small puddle that your dog drinks out of, you want to be really careful and make sure to tune in. We definitely did an ER vet episode on leptospirosis. Another one I wanted to talk to you about is canine hepatitis. And this is something that is potentially contagious and it's actually in the vaccine. Do you mind just explaining what canine adenovirus or canine hepatitis is? Of course. And so canine hepatitis is canine adenovirus type 1, which is abbreviated CAV-1. It is a virus, specifically a DNA virus, which can result in infectious canine hepatitis. And that has the abbreviation ICH, infectious canine hepatitis. And this virus recognizes very specific cells of the liver and potentially also the kidney as well, which can result in disease of the liver, hepatic injury, and even disease of the kidneys. It's different than the adenovirus type 2. While it's a similar type virus, the adenovirus type 2 typically causes breathing changes, respiratory diseases in dogs, and is one of the causes of infectious canine tracheobronchitis. And so, yes, there are two types of canine adenovirus. The one that we're going to talk about today is the type 1, which causes canine hepatitis. Now, is this common or how effective is the vaccine? And is this something that we see a lot nowadays in the ER? Fortunately, because most pets are vaccinated for this, we do not see a lot of this in the hospital, in the clinic, in the ER. It is, though, important to say that vaccines are very helpful for this. And the rarity doesn't mean we shouldn't vaccinate, if that makes sense. Because unfortunately, the mortality rate for patients that get sick from this can be anywhere from 10 to 30%. And this is most often seen in younger dogs. And so this is a very contagious disease. This can be a very virulent virus, meaning you can get sick from it, our pets. 
and it can cause a fairly high rate of mortality, 10 to 30%. So this emphasizes the importance of vaccinating and how great that is, not only to prevent illness and disease, but also prevent them from getting sick and passing away. So not something that we commonly see, but that's because many veterinarians are very proactive about this potentially life-saving vaccine. So keep vaccinating for it. And I know a lot of owners are often confused when they get that postcard or that text reminder saying, hey, your dog's due for vaccines for their DA or DHPP. And again, that H is for hepatitis, or you may see it as DAPP, and that's for adenovirus, which is canine hepatitis. And do you mind just reiterating again the signs of canine hepatitis in puppies that owners, especially when they're adopting dogs or they just had a litter, what they need to be aware of in terms of canine hepatitis? Of course. And unfortunately, like many of the viruses that we see, there's not a specific hallmark sign that's going to tell us very quick in disease soon what's wrong. Because early in infection, patients are going to have vague clinical signs. It could be they don't want to eat as much as they did. They may not play with you as much as they did before. They may be lethargic. They may have some stomach upset signs, vomiting, diarrhea. They can even have signs of discharge from their eyes or nose and even a fever. But if you can tell me from that list of vague clinical signs that, oh, that patient absolutely has hepatitis, I would give you a medal or a monument because those are really, really vague. And, you know, certainly my pets, if they vomit once or twice or, you know, just didn't eat today, I'm not thinking, oh, my God, this is serious. We typically give it a couple of days. But unfortunately, that couple of days that is normal for us to say, OK, let's just see how my dog does, how my puppy does, for example, that could lead to pretty significant disease because as this gets worse, as they end up with more liver disease itself, more bilirubin that builds up in the body, we can see even worse changes such as clotting problems because the liver is getting sick and ill and it's not making clotting factors. They can have internal bleeding. So unfortunately, they can end up with really serious disease, not only the vague clinical signs and bleeding, but even neurologic signs. They can start drooling. They can be ataxic, which is the big fancy medical term for looking drunk or wobbly when they walk and have seizures. So neurologic brain signs can be seen as well. One of the more hallmark signs that we may see in some of these cases, unfortunately, though, a little bit later on, one to three weeks after recovery, is their eyes may change. They can have what's called in quotation blue eye, which is a blue discoloration to their cornea and even kidney changes. But that is one to three weeks often after recovery because they have immune system deposits in these organs. So again, not a hallmark classic sign that we see to say, get them to the vet right away. Some of the more notable signs are after they recover, if they recover, remembering a 10 to 30% of a mortality rate. So the question that I would propose to you to think about is how can we prevent this? It's with vaccines. How is it transmitted? Well, typically it's oronasal exposure, which means they get it from either ingesting or inhaling mouth or nose. That's the common route of infection. And they can get it from ingesting urine, feces, or saliva from an infected dog. After ingesting the urine, the feces, or saliva, how quickly will they get sick? Well, the definition really what we're talking about is what's called the incubation period. An incubation period 
means from the time of exposure, how long does it take for them to actually get sick? And in this case, for this canine infectious hepatitis, the incubation period is, if I give you a round number, about a week. It's really reported to be anywhere from four to nine days following exposure. So even if you have a pet that has recovered from the disease and your dog comes in contact with them, there are times that those recovered and dogs that do not look sick in any way can shed the virus in their urine. And that can be as long as six months or longer after they were exposed. So the take-home point there is just because a puppy or a dog doesn't look sick doesn't mean they can't be transmitting disease, which really is a good point to make sure that you are taking ownership in a sense of your pet, making sure they are vaccinated because in theory, you can't guarantee another dog is vaccinated or is not shedding disease, even if they look 100% normal. Great information. Thank you so much. You know, I think the most important thing is a find a veterinarian that's going to work with you. And I always say, while I don't quote do vaccines, I'm at a specialty clinic and an ER vet. So most of the time I'm not seeing routine vaccinations or puppies or kittens. I think it's really important, as Dr. Garrett Packtinger said, is we want to make sure our puppies and kittens are up to date and completely protected. And the biggest mistake I see pet owners making is one or two vaccines does not protect them. What ends up happening is we end up seeing infectious disease because pet owners didn't know that their dog or their cat needs four to five vaccines every three to four weeks until they're 16 to 20 weeks of age, starting at approximately five to six weeks. And it's not because we're trying to make more money. It's because we're trying to protect your pet. Just like if you have a child, you have to take them in for vaccines more frequently in the beginning because we're trying to stimulate their immune system because they have a really immature immune system. So it's designed to protect them. We actually had our very first episode on ER Vet on when do I need to bring my dog into the ER? So I recommend that you check it out. It aired in September. And Dr. Packtinger and I see a lot of emergency cases that come in through the ER. And the most important thing to recognize is if your dog's not eating. If they're drooling, they're walking drunk, they're vomiting several times, they're collapsed, they're lethargic, they're drinking too much or too little. These are all signs you want to get to a vet right away. Obviously, that list isn't inclusive of everything out there. But if it worries you, if there's even the chance that your dog isn't resting or they seem painful or they're having difficulty breathing or they're straining to urinate or defecate, all of these things are important reasons to go to the ER vet. Remember, the sooner that we diagnose something, the sooner we can fix it. And the biggest mistake I see people making with their pets is waiting too long to get into the ER or to their veterinarian. And usually by that point, it's really deteriorated or your pet may be really sick. So when in doubt, contact your veterinarian or your ER vet right away. I completely agree. It comes back to that old Benjamin Franklin axiom, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. I I totally agree with you, Justine, that not only are vaccines preventative and we should make sure that we do that, but also like you just said, if you notice your pet is not feeling well, in a vast majority of cases, the sooner you bring them in, we will get them feeling better faster. It will be less of an expense because we caught it earlier and hopefully we'll prevent them from getting worse and worse. So I completely agree. 
And if any time you notice that your pet is not feeling well, call your veterinarian, go in and go to the local ER, whatever it may be, but the sooner the better. And that's why we're there as emergency veterinary critical care specialists or as ER vets is we want to make sure we help save your dog or your cat's life. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. Find me at drjustinelee.com, on Facebook at Dr. Justine Lee, or email me your pet questions at drjustine at petliferadio.com. With that, we're out of time, but we wanted to give a huge thank you and shout out to Dr. Garrett Pattinger, fellow emergency critical care specialist, and Mark Winter, our producer, for making this show possible. See you at the next episode. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.